Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. We're at a point now where we are pitting ourselves almost at every point against nature. We're pitting ourselves against the idea that human beings have dependencies and obligations. We're pitting ourselves against the idea that natural family ties are strong and place obligations upon the people who have them. We're even pitting ourselves against the idea that the human body has any kind of natural authority over our identity and who we are. And I think when you pit yourself against nature, what you're effectively doing is engaging in a battle to destroy reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of Academic Programs, and I'm more than thrilled and beyond thankful today for the great privilege of hosting a conversation with Dr. Carl Truman, most recently author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and of Strange New World. Good morning, Carl, and welcome on our show. Morning, Mariana. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I wonder how many podcasts you have recorded recently, but I hope you don't get too tired of them. <laughs> I think the publicist at Crossway told me, I've, I think I've done about 150 in the last year or something. So, Well, I'm <laughs> sure this will be one of the best ones for sure. I'm utterly convinced of that. So great. I'm very happy to be here. And we need our audience to be convinced about that. So I'll try to do my best <laughs> job to prove that this is right. So just before diving into the content of your latest book, Strange New War, which is what I would like to discuss, I would briefly introduce you to our audience, but then please feel free to fill in the gaps or correct me. So Carl Truman, PhD from University of Aberdeen, is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College. Like me, I would say he is an expat, is not originally born and raised here in the U.S., He's a contributing editor at First Things and an esteemed church historian and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Another thing we share in common, though he merits that a lot more, is Dr. Truman was also a visiting scholar with the James Madison program at Princeton in 2018. And then Dr. Truman has authored or edited more than a dozen books, including The Creedal Imperative, Luther and the Christian Life, and Histories and Fallacies. He is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And since we are an institute for the family, we should also probably mention that you are a proud father and also a grandfather, correct? I am indeed. I am. And I mean, people cannot see you right now, but I mean, you're pretty young. So that means, you know, you got married young and had children quite early or at least early compared to today's average. So would you agree with one of the latest findings in social science, which is getting married early is one of the greatest predictor of success? It probably depends who you marry as well. But certainly uh, for me, getting married early was a great move. Love my wife. We've been through quite a bit together as we've emigrated, et cetera, et cetera, and brought up our kids. But uh, yeah, no regrets about getting... I was 23 when I got married. Absolutely no regrets about getting married at 23 and starting a family a couple of years later. Wonderful. I hope that the students listening to you will take it as a sign that they should do it and without worrying. I mean, worrying, yes, sure. But like, well, at least reading the research does suggest that this is a great choice. Now, the book, Strange New World, 
It's the most recent book you published, subtitle How Thinker and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. So I read this book a few months ago and we're still reading and discussing it with our Good Life reading group of young professionals here at the Austin Institute. And also, if anyone is interested in joining for the fall, we're open for new members. And I greatly appreciate it. Participants have greatly appreciated and agreed quite frequently with the ideas and the thesis you exposed there. However, as far as I can, I will at least try to be the devil's advocate here and try to disagree with you if I can on some of the things you say. But starting from the basics, strange new word. What is the underlying thesis of this book? And why is this a new word? The underlying thesis is that we're living at a time of tremendous change, a rapid change, particularly between generations. The world that I grew up in, I know you're younger than me, Mariana, but maybe even the world that you grew up in is very, very different to the one we find ourselves in now. Many of the things that were taken for granted by my generation, uh, that freedom of speech is a good thing, that you cannot make a, a really meaningful distinction between sex and gender, that family was a good, a social virtue. Uh, that freedom of religion was something important for the prospering of society. All of these things are, are in flux. And for many of us, the potential of being confused by this is quite great because in, within our own lifetimes, we've seen society switch 180 degrees in its attitude towards these things. So the underlying, I suppose, agenda behind the book was to try to help people understand why these changes had taken place. My overall argument is that for all of the rapidity of the changes around us, for all of the speed, disconcerting speed at which these things seem to be happening, in actual fact, we are simply living through the latest stage of a very deeply rooted story that the causes or the influences that lie behind the rapid changes we now see are very, very deep and long-standing within Western society. And both the short book and the longer book focus on the issue of what Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, calls expressive individualism. Uh, this is the idea that underlying a lot of the changes that are taking place in society at the moment is a new understanding of what it means to be a self-conscious human being, that we have come to see ourselves as constituted by our inner feelings more than our outward circumstances. And authenticity requires that we be allowed to, to play out those inner feelings in the, in the public sphere. So playing devil's advocate here, why is that wrong? Well, in and of itself, it's not necessarily wrong. Uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, I would say is, is expressive individuals a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it, it combines elements of what it means to be a human being. It's very clear that uh, human beings have always had an inner psychological space, if you like. You can read the Psalms in the Bible and Psalm 88, the psalmist is lamenting. He's giving expression to deep inner feelings. You could read Augustine's Confessions, and Augustine's Confessions is a, an amazing literary achievement where in, in which Augustine explores his inner psychology relative to his unbelief and his belief in the Catholic faith. So expressive individualism, I think, gets some things right. It, it understands we have an inner space. It also, I think, understands that feelings are important. If you look out of the window of your office and see, say, an old lady being beaten up by a crowd of thugs, and you don't feel something, you don't feel outraged by that, then one would say there's something morally wrong with you. So expressive individualism gets hold of, of an element of the truth, and that is that our inner space and our feelings are important. 
Where expressive individualism goes off the rails, I think, is this, that it gives an authority to those inner feelings and that inner state, which becomes problematic in the social sphere. And I would draw a contrast here between, I do in the book, in fact, between Augustine's confessions and the confessions uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Both men wrote what we would now call psychological autobiographies. The difference between the two men is this. For Augustine, the exploration of the inner space always has to be brought into conformity with the outward reality of God. In other words, the inner space is important, but it's not the final authority. The final authority is the givenness of reality itself. With Rousseau, what you're seeing is, is a trajectory that's moving in the direction really of, of giving those inner feelings final authority. I don't think it's quite there in Rousseau. He still has a sort of belief in God. But when you move to the present day and you look at someone, say, like Caitlyn Jenner, what has Caitlyn Jenner done? Well, Caitlyn Jenner has, has allowed inner feelings to become utterly decisive for reality. You look at the interview uh, Jenna did with Diane Sawyer in 2015 for, I think, 60 Minutes. And Jenna there talks about, I'm finally free to be the person I always have been. Well, that rests upon an authorizing of these inner feelings that is way beyond anything even Rousseau imagined, and certainly well beyond anything that uh, Augustine would have regarded as, as legitimate. I would like, I mean, you opened so many windows, you know, I would like to focus on who are the thinkers that led us to to this state. But this point that you were mentioning about the normativity of our feelings, right? So an example that comes to mind to me is something that I often discuss is the divorce, right? So mm. in the past, if you were not doing well with your wife, your friends would have helped you to stay, to remain in a marriage. And our yeah. common answer is, like, well, if you feel that way, right? So if you feel something, you can't force yourself to learn again how to love or right to understand if it's just a passage of time. Because like, this feeling is, imp again, you're not denying that it is important, but we're assuming that the feeling is the norm. So how does this play out when it comes to education? Well, I mean, in education, again, and, and Rousseau is an interesting figure here because he really does stand in some ways as the, uh, the source of a lot of modern educational uh, theory. You think about education, I could draw a contrast here between my education and the education that, say, my, my children had. I went to a very traditional boys' school, grammar school. It was run by the state, but it was a grammar school. The purpose of education in English grammar schools was really to, to crush individuality and make you part of the team. That's why, for example, a big part of the curriculum was focused on team sports. Rugby in the autumn and the winter, cricket in the spring and the summer, you played as part of a team. The purpose of education was not about self-expression. It was about learning to be part of something that is much bigger than you are. Uh, you as an individual only counted to the extent that you are part of the team, the organization, the institution. We might say that school was a place for formation. You went there as raw material to be formed into something that the school, some vision that the school had for you. If you think about education as it often plays out today, the emphasis is often upon children finding themselves, children being able to express themselves. I was watching a debate on television recently. I think it was a school in California debating whether to bring back school uniforms or not. 
And one of the parents stood up and made this speech to the effect that, why can't we allow our children to express themselves through their clothing? Well, that's a, a great example of, that's a clash. If I was in a room with that woman, it would be a clash of visions of education. Because for me, education, it was about the uniform. It's about being part of the team. For her, no. School is not a place for formation in that sense. We might put it, and it sounds somewhat pejorative, but we might say, for her, school was a place where her kids could go to perform, to perform themselves, to find themselves, to express themselves. So the whole child-centered education notion, which again, is not an entirely bad notion. I'm not saying that the way I was educated was entirely good and we want to totally obliterate individuality and produce automata. But the whole philosophy that education is primarily about allowing individuals to find and then express themselves reflects this overall cultural tendency towards expressive individualism. Among 200 pages, I saved a few quotes for a 30 minutes interviews. And one of those that I really like is that today's institutions are no more places of formation, but places of performance. Yeah, that's the point. I actually get that from Yuval Levine, uh, who's now uh, head of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, his recent work has been excellent in this regard, in, in pressing the transformation, the way institutions, we, we've reconceptualized them in the modern world, really to, to cater to and to reinforce this modern version of the self. And it would not apply only to institutions as the school, but even, I mean, among institutions, there is even the family is an institution, right? So how is it that the family is no more a place for the formation of individual, but again, a, a place for performance? Well, again, you can think of a, a variety of ways. Look at, you know, when was the last time that Hollywood produced a blockbuster movie where the traditional family was presented as a positive force? I had a student uh, recently do a paper for me in the humanities class I teach at Grove, and she looked at uh, how many Hollywood movies can now contain scenes of parents apologizing to their children for having messed them up. So that's a, a, a real indicator of what's going on. But again, when you think of uh, what's the family for, I think so many parents now think that their role as parents is that of enabling, of being friends to their children, rather than forming them to become what my father would have described as decent human beings, fit to be let loose on society. I saw this when I served very briefly on the local soccer board in the township where I lived uh, outside Philadelphia. And the tantrums that parents would throw when their child didn't get into the team they wanted to be in. And that, you know, we had much less trouble with the discipline on the field of the young kids than we did off the field with the parents. You see this notion that the family is a place not for forming individuals for a role in a larger society, but for performance, for one-upmanship. Discipline is broken down to a large extent. Which, I mean, here, I don't know if we really agree or disagree, or I will just play the devil advocate, or we really have a, there is a, you know, some room for disagreement between the two of us. But what you said about education and being part of a team, I wouldn't want it to be misunderstood as, you know, the group is more important than the individual, because I don't think this is what right. you're saying at all. No. But maybe we could phrase it differently by saying, even if the highest good that we think is the expression of ourselves as this unique yeah. person that for Christians has been created to be that unique yeah. person, this self-expression requires, as much as our speech now requires that we both learned the rules of grammar and we know how to speak in English properly. Now you a lot better than I can, but in the same way, our self-expression requires us to have learned 
some things that come from the outside and not from inside. Now, is that a fair description? Yes. And I think you're pointing there to one of the, I wouldn't say it's a paradox, but one of the, the interesting things about expressive individualism, of course, is that radical individualism is, is really impossible in any strict sense of the word. I, I give a, it's a slightly facetious lecture that I do in my humanities course at Grove, where I'm talking about this kind of stuff. And I ask the question, why do all teenagers dress the same? Every teenager you meet, you ask them why they dress the way they do, they'll tell you it's their way of expressing themselves, to which the follow-up question is, so why do you all dress the same then? And that, I think, raises the issue of the individual is constructed in dialogue with the world around, and the culture around has rules and has tastes that shape how the individual conceptualize themselves. To put it philosophically, we'd say every, every human being wants to be free, but also wants to belong. And those two things are not easy to tie together because to belong requires a certain sacrifice of freedom. Uh, and it's that point where they meet, that negotiation that I think is, is so fascinating. To go back to where you started that statement, I would say, again, don't want to put forward the form of education I had as being the ideal. One way, I suppose, of thinking about this to say, you know, what is the purpose of education? I think the purpose of education is to teach people both their responsibilities and duties and their rights as individuals. And if my education listed too far one way, it was perhaps towards the responsibilities and not enough on the rights of the individual. I don't think anybody looking at the American education system today would say it lists too far in the responsibility direction. I think, if anything, the pendulum has swung a little too far the other way. Yeah, I, I can't but agree with you. And I'm also grateful that my education up at 30-something years ago in, in Europe, in the old world, maybe with things that now would not be accepted as good things for kids, but I think I think I, I received a good education after all. The title of the book, My Strange New World, speaks of thinkers and activists that redefined identity. So who are for you, and you mentioned them in the book, the most important thinkers that led us to where we are now? Yeah, I think uh, if I had to pick the big three, I mean, I mentioned Rousseau, and I think Rousseau and the Romantics are highly influential. But if I had to pick the big three, uh, makers of modernity, if you like, or makers of the modern self, I think it would be Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. I think all three of them are marked by their, their interest in psychology. Freud, most obviously, of course. But what's interesting about Marx and Nietzsche, or certainly the early Marx and then Nietzsche, when you look at how they treat religion, you know, they're intrigued as to why religion continues even after they considered the Enlightenment to pretty effectively put it to death. And that leads them to reflect upon human motivation, psychology. So all three of those men in their different ways explore, continue to explore that inner space. I think Marx's unique contribution, if, if we can talk about unique contribution, is that he articulates a view of humanity that really squeezes, if not abolishes, the idea of the pre-political. For Marx, there is no space that is not political space. So the traditional family is only considered to be natural by those who have a vested political interest in presenting the traditional family as natural. And Nietzsche ties into that to some extent as well, because for Nietzsche, I always think of Nietzsche as a rather lonely philosopher in that everything for Nietzsche seems to tie into a power play or a clash of wills. Uh, and Freud, of course, is the man who more than anybody else, I think, articulates 
the notion of human beings as being fundamentally sexual. I think I say in the book, uh, Freud is the man who turns sex from being an activity, something you do, to being an identity. And we're all very familiar with that now. And yet when you, when you step back and think, well, we talk about I'm lesbian or I'm gay or I'm bi or I'm, I'm straight, those terms come naturally to us. But when you take a step back from them, they're really rather weird that we would define ourselves in that way. And you go, so, you know, where does that come from? Well, I think the most powerful intellectual or philosophical articulation of that comes from, from Freud in the early 20th century. And what Freud did in his, you know, obscure writings and on his uh, uh, psychoanalyst couch has become a mainstream part of our culture. I find something very interesting in this, the thing you mentioned about Marx and then Nietzsche and Freud, and they connect very well to what we said about education earlier, but that there seems to be in their main thesis of the three philosophers, thinkers, I mean, not Freud is not that much, but you call them thinkers and activists, which, I mean, I would be curious also in understanding where the, the line, where's the line between thinkers and activists. But that in Marx... In Nietzsche and Freud, there is, in all of them, there is a rejection of the givenness, right? So Marx rejects the given community. Nietzsche rejects the given self, right? So it's all about self-creation, the given morality, the given good and bad. I'm going to decide it for myself. And then Freud, I mean, rejects the givenness of, I mean, I don't think that, I don't know there if it's Freud or if it's, it's those who follow him with the gender revolution that will reject the givenness of our sexuality. Yeah. I mean, Freud's interesting. Just to touch on that last point, Freud is very clear that biology, physical biology is very important for psychology. That's why, you know, he's, he has a very low view of women in many ways. The, the problem with women is they don't have male genitalia and they don't like that fact. And that eats away at them. So Freud is interesting in that you're not really, you you have to move on from Freud to get to to gender theory. And Simone de Beauvoir, I think, is a key figure there. Uh, She comes after Freud in The Second Sex for his real attempt to biologically ground the fundamental differences between men and women. So I think de Beauvoir is, is a key figure. But again, what you're pointing to in general with those three is that, you know, they're sometimes referred to as the masters of suspicion. All three of them teach us to be very suspicious about the givenness of things. Everything in a different way is a kind of construct for them. And how much in this discussion with the, I was mentioning the Young Professional Reading Group, but we were fascinated at our last meeting and how looking at your thesis and ideas, we end up defending a different word, right? That is less strange or maybe less new, but somehow starting from the same premises. So while disagreeing on, you know, maybe puberty blockers for uh, adolescents, we're still assuming that sexuality is actually defining ourselves. So I wonder, like, you, you mentioned how these ideas have shaped not one side of the conversation. Yes, I think it's, the, it's, it's a cliche to say it, but it's, it's the water we all swim in. There's no way of, of escaping the culture in which we find ourselves. And as I alluded to earlier on, it, it's not all bad either. I mean, one of the things, if you would say to me, what's one of the really good things that flows out of, say, Rousseau, I would say an emphasis upon universal human dignity. You get that from somebody like Rousseau in a way that a lot of Christian theologians before Rousseau paid lip service to it, but practically it was not 
at the core of, of the way they thought and, and acted. Uh, so I'd want to say that it's the water we swim in. It's not entirely bad. Having said that, I think we need increasingly in the world in which we live to be aware that it's the water we swim in. And you know, I've made a comment uh, at numerous lectures I've given over the last uh, couple of years that you know, when you start referring to yourself as straight, you may think you're affirming something good. In actual fact, you're conceding a sort of metaphysical point to the opposition that your sexual desire is fundamentally definitive of who you are. On a more practical level, you, you alluded earlier on to, to changing views of marriage. You know, how many? I'm speaking here of the Protestant Church. I, I know that the Catholic Church, at least on paper, has remained very solid uh, on marriage. But how many Protestant churches uh, winked at no-fault divorce and then thought they could mount a coherent critique of gay marriage when no-fault divorce is predicated on the idea that marriage is a sentimental bond between two people to be dissolved once the sentimental bond isn't working for them, one or the other? That's basically the logic of gay marriage. So I think it's it behoves uh, conservatives, and particularly behoves conservative Christians, to think very carefully about how we relate to a whole range of issues in order to make sure that we are being consistent. And, and that's also helpful, I would say, from a perspective of virtue, in that it helps us to avoid that pharisaical attitude of us versus them. Now, actually, it's we're all implicated in this. And perhaps the first thing that Christians need to do is, is exhibit some humility and repentance relative to some of the things that are going on that we ourselves have, have turned a blind eye to or even been involved in. I absolutely agree. We had, I had the, the honor of speaking with you recently about your thesis and you know how much I appreciate what you wrote. And I wholeheartedly agree, especially on this thing about the no-fault divorce and what marriage is for, right? But to that point, I would like to ask you, do you find that even the choice of, you, you mentioned in your book how the choice of a particular church among Protestants can become an yeah. act of expressive individualism. And I would add that even being or not being a Christian can be a performative action. And in the same way, doing a lot of things that are good, getting married young or having eight kids could become a way in which we're actually expressing ourselves rather than in religion, I would say, rather than our relationship, right? So yeah. what do you think are good ways to be aware of our own way of buying into that? If I could give a simple answer to that, I'd become a millionaire overnight because I could bottle it and sell it. <laughs> I think, first of all, being aware that there is a problem isn't the solution, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And I think you've just wonderfully articulated the issue there, Marianne, and really picked up uh, on the point that Charles Taylor makes. Uh, he's making the point non-polemically, but he makes a point in, I think it's a secular age, where he comments that you can believe the same things today that a Christian believed in 1500. You could be a conserv very conservative Roman Catholic and believe the same things that a Catholic believed in 1500. Incarnation, resurrection, Trinity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the sting in the tail is Taylor says, but you can't believe in the same way because you choose to believe. Religion is a choice now, and that changes everything. And uh, though he doesn't take it so much in this direction, one of the, the ways I'd want to take it is that makes religion a consumer choice. And when you throw into the mix technology, the automobile, for example, the ease of transportation, 
life becomes, even our religious lives become much more a matter of choice, much more a matter of consumerism than they ever were before. And, and it, it has an impact on the church because the church is now competing for customers. So the church itself starts to adapt in ways it would never have had to have done in the Middle Ages to, cons- you know, for want of a better term, consumer demands. So, yes, absolutely, religion itself becomes a performance. How do we get around this? It's not easy to say, and I think it may look different for different people, but I, I think self-policing has to lie somewhat at the heart of it, self-discipline. Commit to places. Commit to people and commit to places. When you join a church, uh, certainly in the Protestant tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, you take solemn vows of membership. Those are solemn vows to be broken only under the most serious of circumstances. Take your vows seriously. Police yourself on that front. If you're young, and you're in love with a a young girl or a young guy, commit. Cut down your options. Commit to people. If the problem behind expressive individualism is that it feeds our belief that we're autonomous, we have rights, uh, and we are free, then live your life in a way that acknowledges that isn't the reality. But actually, human beings, we are dependent, we are related, we have obligations. Realize those things in your own life. Commit to people, commit to institutions, things like that. Again, is it a fail-safe way of doing it? Could we turn our commitment into a performance? The heart is sinful above and deceitful above all things. I'm a good Augustinian on that front. Do these things and then confess, if you like, the Mm. sin that's involved, even as we do these good things. But if we're not doing the good things, if we're not committing, if we're not tying ourselves down, then really the situation is absolutely hopeless at that point. Yeah, I like very much what you said as one of the solutions, like close down some of the options, like commit to something that prevents you from doing something else forever and ever, right? With this constant freedom of reshaping your own life. And and this gets me to the last point that I wanted to make, because as an historian, you mentioned in your book, you should not even say, you know, that this word is more tragic than ever, because that's not what usually historians do. Like, they always think, you know, there was precedent for this. We're not, it's not. But at the same time, you say, no, this word is new and is a lot more sinister than other moments in history. And I want you to stress this because I agree on your conclusion, but I really want both the students and the parents and the singles that are listening to us to get the book and read it in order to be able to do this analysis because I do agree with you that it's a sinister time. So why is that? Because I think more than ever, it is our culture is pitting itself against nature in a whole variety of ways, most obviously technologically. I was very intrigued reading, uh, this sounds horribly pretentious, and I don't mean it to sound pretentious, but I was very intrigued recently rereading uh, Heidegger's essay concerning the question of technology. He makes a point, he says, there's a big difference between building a bridge over a river and damming that river up to produce hydroelectric power. And I think the point he's trying to make is when you build a bridge over a river, it's technology. You are changing the world, but you're changing the world in a way that respects the natural form of the world. You're not attempting to master nature. You're attempting to work with nature and along with nature in order to achieve an end. Whereas when you start damming a river up to produce hydroelectric power, your whole attitude to nature is changing. The whole way you relate to the world is changing. And I think I'd want to say, first of all, as a Christian, the world has always been fallen. 
So in any given era, you could drop me down at any point in history and I'd say to you, look at this evil, look at that evil, look at these terrible things that are happening. And that's why I'd want to say today, when I look at the world around me, I want to give thanks for the good things that we have in this world. Uh, it, to me, it's a good thing that we have better treatments for cancer than we've ever had before. We have better treatments for childhood illnesses than we've ever had. But these are good things to celebrate and to rejoice. But I don't think that should blind us to the fact that what's going on, we're at a point now where our culture is not building bridges across rivers. It's not working alongside nature to improve the human lot. We're at a point now where we are pitting ourselves almost at every point against nature. We're pitting ourselves against the idea that human beings have dependencies and obligations. We're pitting ourselves against the idea that natural family ties are strong and place obligations upon the people who have them. We're even pitting ourselves against the idea that the human body has any kind of natural authority over our identity and who we are. And I think when you pit yourself against nature, what you're effectively doing is engaging in a battle to destroy reality. And I don't think that can be done. I think when you engage in a war with reality, reality will bite back and human beings will be the losers in that battle in the end. So I would want to say to the parents out there, the things that are going on, say with relative to the trans movement, for example, kids have always rebelled, but they haven't always rebelled in a way that seals their fate in terms of having children at aged 11 or 12. That's where we are now. That's a much more sinister world in many ways than the world we've witnessed in the past. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you. And I also think that that's one of the reasons the job of the Austin Institute for the family is important, is that what you describe in your book is that the animosity towards the family and then ultimately against the body and the human body, but the human body exists because there is a union between a man and a woman. Absent yeah. that union, there is no human body, right? So this yeah. animosity has been going on for centuries, which to me testifies why do we find it so difficult today to talk about these things and we have so much pushback, right? And so many people get upset with certain things are being just discussed, not preached, but discussed. And so your book reveals, well, because you have centuries of antagonism to these ideas that are fundamental to, to human nature. So that's what I would invite everyone to not believe that because an idea is not the majority idea that, you know, should suggest that it is wrong or it's old. Maybe it's not majority because the obstacles have been legion and have been there for quite a long time. Now, I know that you don't have a lot of time. You're very busy. And I want to thank you for having spent some time with us. And I know that our young professionals are thrilled to having a conversation over Zoom with you over your book soon. But I also wanted to say to those who believe in the work that we do and to you know the work that you do and that you did right in your book and not being afraid of you know what the mainstream culture could think and you're still a bestseller, is that to the extent that universities are still places where education, real education happens. We're very proud of our collaboration with the Seventh Century UT. And thanks to that collaboration, we will be hosting as Austin Institute a lecture, a lunch talk in September with you, September 19. Now the, the page, the web page to register for that is not online yet, but it will be soon. And so somehow, you know, we do what we can, but we try 
to maintain universities as places of real education and real dialogue. So I actually very much look forward to to that moment and, you know, hearing what maybe younger students would have asking you, you know, about your book. And, and again, I can't help but recommend reading it. And you mentioned before the older, you know, the bigger, the shorter, the older, the newer book, because Strange New World is a shorter or can we call it a simplified version? It is. It has some new, there's some new stuff in it that isn't in the larger book, because obviously the larger book generated discussions that I wanted to take account of. But essentially, the, the shorter book, it was the brainchild of Ryan Anderson at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who he said, you know, he liked my first book. He said, but the, there's one problem. He said, it's just too big. Nobody's going to read it. Uh, he said, I need something that I can give to DC staffers that they can read when they're on the metro in the morning or something on the way to work. So the idea is that, that it's a boiled down argument without the footnotes that gives you the the basic narrative of, of what I'm trying to do in the larger book. Yeah. So we could say to the scholars listening, you can get the rise and triumph of the modern self, so that you get all the footnotes and you can, you know, have all the appropriate counter arguments. And to everyone else, I really think that Ryan Anderson suggested the right thing because it's a very easy book. I even brought it to a swimming pool. So it's very light. You can bring it with you. Now, not everyone reads these kind of things at the swimming pool, but I definitely do. And I, <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much again, Carl, for your time, for your precious insights. And we really look forward to seeing you again in Austin. Thanks very much. A pleasure as always to talk to you, Maria. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening and we hope you enjoyed our episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you did like the episode, remember to share it among your friends. Remember to subscribe. And if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute so that we can continue to do this and we can continue with our programming and we can continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.